Yeah, you know, in a way, I feel a little bit like the Melvins to uh, say Andy knows Nirvana. You know, like I, I, I feel like I sort of pioneered a lot of the um, on the street new media journalism stuff, and then so many other people have taken it and run with it, and yeah, it's great in a lot of ways. You know, because the more people out there reporting on what's really going on, the better. An idea whose time has come cannot be stopped by any army or any government. The Other and One Call Podcast starts now. Welcome to Honor and Ron Paul podcast. This is episode 28, and I'm very honored to have uh, Michael Strickland uh, with me today. Uh, Michael Strickland and I met briefly way back in uh, Ron Paul days, 2007. Uh, we manned some booths. I've lost a, a bit of contact with him. Uh, my brother knows him a bit better. Uh, that's Master Brian from episode 20-something. I'll have to, to look that up. Uh, but, uh, uh, we had some, uh, interaction, um, back then I just knew him as a shred guitarist who was super into Ron Paul and, uh, wanted to, uh, always posted these videos at, uh, laughing at liberals uh, on YouTube. And, uh, he at that time looked like a fairly typical long-haired hippie. Of course, now the hippies have man buns and little beanies and, and don't look like you looked. <laughs> and so uh, that's always kind of interesting how fads change. Uh, but you would, you would blend in to these um, uh, environments and uh, get people saying, you know, ridiculous things like, I don't know, Che Guevara was a great guy or, or something I, I can't remember exactly, but then um, you really had a lot of man on the street uh, video uh, of uh, different protests, different events, and you would get into, you know, I, I can't remember, but different debates at universities where, you know, people would be in different meetings where they're talking about uh, crazy ideas and whatnot. And then it all kind of went south, but I'm going to save that for a bit. Uh, if you wouldn't mind, take me through your your kind of journey into uh, being a liberty advocate. Where did you start? Did Ron Paul have any influence? That type of thing. Uh, well, uh, first of all, uh, thanks for having me. Uh, it's great to be here. Um, yeah, you know, all through my 20s, I was you know playing guitar and metal bands and whatnot all through my teens and 20s. And so that's uh, mainly what I focused on. And then, you know, when you start getting a little older and you start recognizing more things going on around the world, then you, you know, start getting different interests. And so, yeah, of, of course, you know, being into the whole, uh, you know, Ron Paul thing, you know, that, that was an influence early on, but, you know, I, I realized that it wasn't just about Ron Paul. It's not just about what happens on a nationwide thing. It's not just about the president. In fact, I came to realize that whoever's president actually has a lot less impact on our lives than our state and local uh, elected officials. So I really started getting interested in what happens on, on a state and local level. And of course, living in the Portland area, um, there's really not much in the way of um, non-communist stuff, for lack of a better term. Um, so I sort of, I, I found my niche 
going around and filming various political events in the area and just posting the videos up onto YouTube of, of what these people are saying, what these people are doing. And uh, that's where the whole laughing at liberals moniker came from is because these people are saying such ridiculous things and advocating for such crazy stuff that you can't help but laugh at them. And I call them communists, not just to randomly throw that term around, but because they're actually out there with hammer and sickle flags. They're actually holding, you know, Marxist training sessions at Portland State University. They host the Northwest Marxism Conference at Portland State University. Um, you know, they're, 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 you know, there's little helmets and shields that they have these days, have the hammer and sickle on them. You know, they have all these Marxist quotes on their banners. So I call them communists because they're actual communists. Right. Yeah. And, and you had some videos that uh, I think were shared by Glenn Beck or someone. I, I can't remember. Oh. picked up some traction earlier. Oh yeah. Um, you know, I, I started the channel in 2010, 2011, and, uh, you know, we were just kind of making this up myself and uh, Dan Sandini was another guy. He ran the uh, daylight disinfectant channel. He's not really active anymore these days, but, um, you know, we, we basically figured this stuff out as we were going along because there was no manual for this. There was no blueprint. We were, we were blazing the trail for what, you know, folks like Andy No and Elijah Schaefer and all these other people are doing these days. You know, we, we, and not not to toot my own horn, but we kind of pioneered that stuff, you know, coming up on 10 years ago. And so, yeah, yeah. over time, you know, we'd catch these people saying and doing such ridiculous things that, yeah, some of these videos would start to go viral and they'd get picked up by, you know, TV stations or, um, you know, uh, other big uh, news websites and whatnot. So, yeah, over time. You know, it, it just grew and grew and grew and I was getting more and more views and yeah. And so when, uh, about what time was kind of your cover blown when people at these different events and protests started to to recognize you and, and kind of know why you were filming? That kind of came and went. It sort of depended on where I was at, but um I mean, it, it, it lasted for, you know, a few years before I really, really became known. Uh, but it, it would just depend on who happens to be around. I was a little surprised at the lack of sort of internal communications between these different uh, organizations regarding them, regarding different organizations taking longer to figure me out than other ones did earlier on. So I, mm. I was kind of lucky in that regard. <laughs> right, right. But at some point, you started to have a, uh, a reputation, and, and were were you sought out uh, at these uh, different protests and approached at all? Well, from time to time, yes. But at that time, the protests were a much different scene than they are these days. Very, very rarely was there any violence back when I was filming the protests. You know, I think I saw a grand total of maybe, you know, three windows getting shattered in Portland, you know, and and, very rarely would I see fights breaking out these days, all that stuff is commonplace. So back then it wasn't nearly as dangerous to go to a, a protest in the street as it is these days. Right. And, um, so uh, people forget that Black Lives Matter 
protests. Uh, these have been going on in, in Portland for quite a while. Uh, and then there's um, uh, not, not nearly as large, but you know, there are always somebody out walking around with some kind of a sign and, and then Occupy Wall Street kind of folded into the various different ones. And so there's always been just. It's, it's all the same people behind all this stuff. It's just they'll hold up different banners with a different little trendy name of what happens to be a popular name for a movement. But it's all the same people that run these things. It, it, the actual activists on the street will oftentimes change because people grow up. You know, most of these people are, you know, 20 some, you know, college students, you know, so, so in that regard, the, the actual people on the street are often cycling around, but the main players behind the scenes are basically the same people today as they were 10 years ago. Okay. So you've, you've been doing this for about a decade now and you, you kind of see, well, the message is essentially the same people organizing it are essentially the same. I mean, you've got pawns that, you know, come and go depending on their availability. They're useful idiots. <laughs> right. They're, they're, you know, the fire in their belly as they come through Portland state university and then fade off. Uh, so it's, it's kind of a, a known group and you're known to that group. Uh, yes, certainly as time went on. Yes. <laughs> okay. And now it's, it's quite obvious that, um, this known group can spur on violence. They might, might not be the same people, but you know, the, the, the threat of violence is always very real anytime that there, there is a mob. And, uh, and we see that all around the world, all, I should say all around the country at this time, but you had that feeling of safety in the past. Um, but at the same time, things seem to start ramping up um as far as were you receiving on on uh social media threats or anything like that prior to the incident we're going to talk about uh, yeah so you know as 2015 and as 2016 sort of wore on and as i became more and more known and most importantly as trump was gaining more and more momentum that was really riling up all these leftist organizations in the area and their rhetoric was ramped up their um you know their internal rage was all ramped up and so you know we could we could sort of tell that all that stuff was starting to come to a head as 2016 was starting to wear on so then was that the time of the antifa anti-fascist well, Antifa has been around since, you know, the 1920s, 1930s. Well, uh, sure. that, that was you know, growing in Germany and whatnot. But after World War II, it laid mostly dormant. Uh, you know, there were a few little uh, cells that would you know, pop up every now and again. Portland ended up getting one that was, um, you know, relatively active, but still relatively small back in 2016 you know this was before antifa was a household name i was familiar with them because i had covered so many of these protests but you know they weren't very well known to the average person so coming into uh, one specific protest and, and you have on your uh, laughing at liberals um make sure that everybody goes to youtube.com slash laughing at liberals uh, to check this out because you did a very good multi-camera report of uh, this uh, incident um, where you were violently confronted 
and being a good libertarian, of course you carry, and that comes into play. Why don't you break it down here for my listeners just a little bit, and then we'll encourage them to go to your videos as well. Yeah, well, you know, one thing I want to make clear is when I go to these events, you know, I'm not there to argue with anyone. I'm not there to debate anyone, you know, especially a large protest. I always preferred the fly on the wall uh, kind of mindset there. So you know, I, I'm just standing there holding a video camera. And that's been, that's been your modus operandi the entire time. You've never been a confrontational guy. You've just for, been for the most part, for this. the most part. And, 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 and that really wore on as I got more and more into this. And as this morphed into my actual job, from what had started off as a hobby of filming these events, eventually morphed into my actual job. And, and, and I became more and more fly on the wall, like as, as this went on. So uh, the incident that we're talking about here is uh, July 7th, 2016. Uh, I was downtown Portland uh, filming a protest. Uh, this was the day after that guy uh, just outside of Minneapolis had gotten shot uh, in the car and his girlfriend started live streaming there on Facebook. And so that was, Oh, Philando Castile. Yes. It's interesting. Oh. It's interesting. You remember his name because most of the protesters don't. Oh, whenever, uh, yeah. Whenever I bump yeah. into them these days and I ask, Hey, do you even remember why we, why you were protesting that night? You know, I don't know. You, you don't remember the guy's <laughs> name? I don't know. <laughs> well, I don't know. Just cause uh, you know, gun rights thing that, yeah. So yeah, I'm I'm just standing there holding a video camera, and again, these people don't like me because I'm filming what they're actually saying, what they're actually doing, and you know, posting it up on YouTube raw in your face, like. So a bunch of these guys, you know, in black block as it's known today, uh, they're making a beeline straight for me. They got the masks over their faces, they got their black hoodies on and whatnot. Um, a couple of them wearing sunglasses to make it even harder to ID themselves. Um, some of them are carrying their uh, flagpoles with their anarchist flags on them, which uh, I've personally seen used as weapons to smash out windows. And so these guys are making a beeline right for me. And uh, they're led by a guy. His name is Benjamin Carenza. He weighs 400 pounds. He is literally twice my size. Uh, he's been in and out of federal prison three times, in and out of numerous different county jails on a variety of different charges over the years. Uh, so, yeah, very lengthy criminal history for this guy. They start encircling me from behind, and this big dude starts pushing and shoving me, screaming, you know, you need to get the F out of here. Get the F out of here. You're screaming at me that I'm racist and all this stuff. I'm saying, hey, I'm not racist. You know, don't put your hands on me. Don't put your hands on me. And I start backing away. Obviously, these guys mean business. I'm outnumbered. You know, I'm not there to fight. I'm not there to cause any trouble. So I start backing away. Uh, these guys start taking steps towards me as I'm backing away. Uh, so now I interpret their threat level to now be increased because not only have did they just target me, but now they're coming after me as I'm trying to back away. Now I got uh, my uh, camera and computer gear in my backpack. I got my uh, camera on my monopod and whatnot. Um, I got other stuff in my backpack. So I'm not going to turn my back to these guys and try to outrun them. I've also had knee problems in the past. Um, also, the year previously, I actually did have two video cameras stolen from me, and I was body slammed onto the pavement, and my arm severely broken, requiring multiple surgeries. So I'm backing away because I, I don't want any trouble. 
And these guys can continue to come after me as I'm backing away. I flip my monopod upside down to use that as sort of the uh, intermediary, non-lethal option. Uh, you know, if they're going to hit me with their flagpoles and whatnot, I'd at least have something that's equal to that that I could, you know, parry their movements with. So more and more people are now coming running into the scene because I'm the bad guy for some reason. So I'm backing up all the way up the block here. And this other guy, Malcolm Chaddock, who I've also seen causing trouble at protests, uh, he starts circling around my back now to my right. So my attention is distracted to my right. And because I have a decent sense of situational awareness, you know, my eyes are you know, trying to constantly scan the, um, you know, the horizontal plane here to see as I'm assessing who's coming at me, you know, who, who, who is a threat, who isn't a threat, uh, who's leaving the scene, who's running into the scene. It, it's just a very chaotic and dynamic situation that is changing from second to second here. And I'm, I'm trying to keep up with it all. And so this other guy's circling around my back. I'm, my attention is distracted to my right. But I happen to catch the big guy, Carenza, who started it all, now coming up on my blind side. Now, at that moment, I had every reason to believe that these guys, in a mob mentality, were just a second or two away from charging at me, tackling me to the ground, pummeling me into the pavement, robbing me of my camera and computer gear. I, I had every reason to believe that, that what, that's what was about to happen. So, Because it had happened before, right? Yeah. And so, yeah, I'd been through numerous different firearms classes. I'd been a CHL holder for five years at that point. Um, I'd even been through uh, some training from uh, DPSST instructors, uh, the same people who train and certify the police. Uh, some of them do, you know, civilian-based courses uh, in their spare time. So, you know, I've gone through all these things that I'd been trained to do in a situation like this. And, and now I've exhausted all these other options. You know, I issued verbal commands. That did not uh, deter the mob. I used a non-lethal intermediary. That did not deter them. I'm trying to back away to get out of the situation. That did not deter them. So at this point, I've exhausted all these other options. So at that point, I draw. I draw my gun. I a Glock on me. I draw it. I level it straight at these people. because I'm not going to go into the low ready in something like this. I'm not just going to have it at my side because it's too easy to get tackled from something like that. It was too easy for someone to gain control of my arm at that point. So I, I drew and immediately punched out at these people, uh, leveling it straight at them. And I said, get the hell away from me. Everybody needs to get the hell back. Fortunately, finally, this is what finally deterred them. This is what finally stopped them from coming at me. Uh, so, you know, they, they stopped, they backed away, and I'm still backing away too, even, even when I have it drawn. So I was taught to shoot until the threat has been neutralized. In this case, just the act of me drawing was enough to neutralize these threats. And so with the threats neutralized, I reholstered. Um, yeah, there were a couple TV cameras nearby. So I, went, I knew this was going to be on the news. So I went to them right away and I explained what had happened that led up to that. You know, they had surrounded me. They started pushing and shoving me. They had their flag staffs. So I wanted to make sure that was clear. And then I continued backing away up the block. These people still coming at me as I'm, as I'm backing away. A few other people got in my face, uh, but it was not the, to the level of physical threat where I felt the need to draw again. So one interesting thing about this particular protest is that there were no police anywhere to be seen. 
Uh, up until that time, it seemed like the standard protocol for police was to have a couple rows of cops on bikes sort of on the perimeter of these things, just you know, monitoring things, just acting as a deterrent of, so, of sorts. Uh, there was none of that this time. I was left to fend for myself. Now, had there been a row of cops somewhere, I, I would have backed myself towards them and the mob would have left me alone. Or I doubt the mob ever would have come after me at the first place had there been some sort of police presence there. So when I'm still backing away, I get a couple blocks away. The big dude still, you know, in tow, you know, 40, 50 feet away from me, sort of you know, walking me down as I'm, uh, as I'm backing away. A few other people, too. Eventually, the cops show up. They jump off their paddy wagon in riot gear. They draw their guns on me, screaming at me to get on the ground. I'm trying to explain to them what had happened. The big dude standing right there started attacking me. I tried to get away. He kept coming after me. So I acted in self-defense. I'm a CHL holder. It's in my wallet. You know, the cops didn't care anything about what I had to say. They didn't want to look at my video. They didn't want anything to do with me. They immediately go over to, uh, the, to Carenza and say, oh, you're, you're, you're the victim here, right? Can, can you tell us what happened? So I'm the one arrested. I'm the one tossed in jail. Um, you know, we, we, I don't know how much detail you want me to go into into this thing. Um, I show up for my arraignment the next day, and this uh, DA gal, Kate Molina, she pulls out this phony police report that I didn't even know existed from this other guy who I barely knew who had gotten in my face screaming and yelling at me a couple weeks beforehand. This guy's now claiming that I am sending him race-based threatening text messages and voicemails that I'm driving by his house with my hand in the shape of a gun. Of course, I don't do any of that stuff. I don't even know who this guy is. So she pulls out this phony police report, reads it in front of all the media that's there in the courtroom, wow. and justifies this to the judge to now add felony charges onto me and toss me into jail on a $250,000 bond Keep in mind, I have not harmed so much as a fly throughout this entire thing. I was the one harmed. I was the one trying to get away. I was the one who followed the training that I received from state officials. So I'm, to wow. so I'm tossed in jail. Fortunately enough, people, you know, namely uh, Oregon Firearms Federation, uh, you know, raised defense funds for me, you know, bailed me out. Uh, so I at least wasn't stuck in jail. So... Um, you know, they eventually upped the charges to 21 counts total, uh, 10 felonies of unlawful use of a weapon, 10 misdemeanors of menacing, and one misdemeanor of disorderly conduct. The violent thugs who started the fight are considered to be the innocent victims. So this thing goes to trial. They're claiming that there are 10 alleged victims throughout this whole thing only two of which were ever identified, ever came forward, that being Carenza, the big guy who started the entire thing, and Malcolm Chaddock, the guy who was circling around my back to serve as the distraction so Carenza could run up on my blind side and ambush me again. So I'm eventually found guilty of all 21 counts by Judge Thomas Ryan. Uh, we had to go with a bench trial and uh, boot the jury because the jury was all tainted due to the district attorney's false misleading statements that they said about me in front of media that was broadcast mm. everywhere. Um, so I'm eventually found guilty of 21 counts here. Uh, 
sorry, my, I, whew, it's, yeah, it's, that's it's fine. hard to go back. I mean, if you want to ask me any questions at this point. No, 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 that's fine. Uh, so it sounds like some people in the um, defensive gun community did uh, provide some assistance, but it didn't seem to really take off like I, like I thought it would as far as it, the injustice of it. Here, you know, here's one aspect of that. So my first person video is the only angle that shows the initial attack from the incident because none of the other cameras panned around until I was already backing away until there was already some sort of commotion. So the only thing that got played on the news was the seven seconds where I draw the gun and tell everybody to get back. Right. That's the only context anyone has for this whole thing. And then with the uh, district attorney reading those false statements about me the next day, now the story turns into crazed white supremacist pulls gun on peaceful protesters. My first person video was immediately seized by police. Uh, And then the judge issued um, an order sealing all the evidence in the case. I was banned by the pretrial release officer, uh, Chelsea Fanua, from talking to media, from posting videos, from blogging, from going to political events, from going on Twitter. I could not state my own case. So the only narrative out there was crazed white supremacist guy pulls gun on peaceful protesters. Wow. So that's why a lot of these, namely the NRA, who can go straight to hell as far as I'm concerned, um, they these other gun groups showed no interest in helping me out because I was immediately regarded as the bad guy. They immediately believed all of the mainstream media narrative that I was legally banned from combating. Had I posted my, had I stolen my own video out of my attorney's office and posted it, had I talked to media, had I gone to a political event to state my own case, I would have been tossed back in jail and forfeited $250,000. Wow. And, you know, when I saw that seven seconds or whatever on television, you know, I was like, oh, well, that seems like a justifiable pull. (laughs) Yeah, even that, even (laughs) without the full context, a lot of people said, oh, yeah, obviously these guys were coming after him and and he felt threatened by them. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's like, uh, you know, in, in the different CHL trainings, I mean, they have these, you know, various metrics when people are oftentimes justified uh, in feeling that their life is, is threatened. And, uh, you know, a single adult that's larger than a single male, larger than you or two disparity uh, of force, yeah, disparity of force or three teenagers, you know, things like that can be considered a disparity of force. And uh, so, you know, 10, it it seemed fairly, fairly obvious. um, But I definitely had a sinking feeling when I was like, oh, this is Multnomah County. Oh, man, Mike is, uh, Mike's in trouble. So you recognized me right away from what you saw there? You, you knew that that was me? Oh, uh, my brother Brian. Okay. Uh, he said, oh, man. Because a lot of people didn't realize that was me at first. Mm. It was... Yeah, it was just because uh, Brian uh, said, oh, right. man, do you remember that Mike guy, Mike Strickland? I was like, oh, yeah, he's like, what's he up to? <laughs> it's like, oh. Uh, yeah. So that's just really frustrating. And now we can see full circle how, uh, if that had, if that, I have to imagine that if that had happened now, people would, would recognize that, uh, 
Antifa and these different groups can be violent. They have been violent. Uh, they threaten violence all the time. They beat up Andy No uh, and several other people. So, well, I argue that my case set the standard for that because, again, up until that moment, violence was pretty rare at these protests. After that moment, remember, this was summer of 2016. After then, violence became commonplace. That's when we saw the election week riots. That's when we saw other people getting pulled out of their cars and beaten. That's when we saw all these other businesses getting looted. You know, essentially what's happened here is Antifa and these other violent leftist organizations, they've realized that they can target and attack anybody they want on the street. And not only do they not face any consequences for doing the attack, the person they target is the one who gets arrested and thrown in jail if they fight back. Essentially, what's happened here is the police, the courts, the DAs have incentivized violence. They've rewarded violence. That's why we see more of it today. Hmm. Well, that's a disturbing idea. So, are you banned from, I mean, you, you can't own guns anymore because it was a felony. Correct. Did you have to do any time? Yes, so I had spent uh, 11 days in jail, I think, before I got bailed out. Um, the judge sentenced me to a total of 40 days. I got uh, four days of good behavior, and they gave me the day where I was initially arrested in custody. That left me a balance of 24 days to be served on weekends, uh, which I did. Um, uh, 240 hours of community service, uh, three years of probation, uh, $3,100 in fines. Uh, keep in mind, I banned from working because I can't film political events, uh, can't film anything at the colleges. Uh, I was still uh, financially recovering from when my arm had been shattered the year before. Um, uh, yeah, uh, not only can I not own a gun, but a gun cannot even be accessible to me. Let's say I'm at somebody else's house and they have a gun sitting on a table in a room that's next to the room that we're in. I don't even know it's there. If a cop walks in and sees that, I go to prison because that gun is accessible to me. Mm. Well. So the case is plotting through the appeals process because of course my actions were solely in self-defense. Uh, now, in the appeals process, you're not necessarily going back and re-arguing guilt or innocence. You're, you're not, you know, pouring over the evidence in detail like that again. What you're doing... So it's not a, not a retrial, it's appeal. Correct. A retrial can happen out of the appeal. Okay. But what the appeals are, they're based on errors that were made during the trial that affected the outcome. So we raised six of those errors. Uh, first of all, we were denied change of venue uh, because we'd motioned to uh, move the case to a different county with a different jury pool away from would, the uh, Portland media footprint. Based, that would obviously make sense. Yeah, based primarily on the district attorney's own false words about me that were made in front of media that tainted the jury pool, which led to us having to dismiss the jury and go with a bench trial. I was denied my right to a fair trial by a jury of my peers because of that. And the judge did not uh, approve our motion for change of venue. Um, unlawful use of a weapon has multiple different 
definitions. We motion for the state to clarify. When I say the state, that's the same thing as the district attorneys, as the prosecutors. Uh, so we had motioned for them to clarify which part of the law they were charging me with. Uh, the judge said they didn't have to clarify that. Uh, we, uh, my statements to the detective that were made uh, while I was in custody, talking about you know how I was in fear, how these people had attacked me, how I was trying to get away, how I had acted in self-defense. My statements to the detective were ruled to be inadmissible. That's what? That's considered hearsay. What? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so think about this. Think about the new precedents that are set by that sort of thing. If you have somebody confessing to a murder in front of a detective, the defense attorneys can now cite my case as saying, "Oh, Your Honor, citing State versus Strickland, that's inadmissible." Hmm. So th this is going to go all different ways. Um, all evidence relating, all mentions relating to my arm getting shattered the year before were ruled to be inadmissible. So we couldn't say, we couldn't go up there and say, yeah, Strickland had had two video cameras stolen. He has been physically attacked. That added to his mindset of fear that he believed as the situation was playing out. That's ruled to be inadmissible. We couldn't talk about it. Whoa. Judge says that's irrelevant to someone's mindset, which also means that it's irrelevant to one's ability to defend themselves going mano a mano if they have a partial disability and only partial use of one arm. Uh. Uh, we also, uh, in the appeal, um, there was an ambush witness. So after both sides had rested, so the prosecutors put on their case, they rest, the defense puts on our case, we rest, we had brought up an expert witness in uh, firearms and self-defense who testified that everything I did was correct with, you know, the way a, a civilian is trained with, you know, all these other things. So after we rested, that's when the prosecutors say, oh, your honor, we want to bring up our own expert witness now. We're saying, oh, wait, you, you had your chance to do this during your main part of the trial you you've had weeks months to find somebody to testify to this and it, you're supposed to provide a witness list uh of people that you intend to call uh as part of the trial and so that, so they they uh they had an ambush witness the judge approved it that an ambush witness can come and testify that we had no previous knowledge of now this uh witness uh he didn't actually witness the thing he was only testifying as to uh firearms and use of force uh, he is Gresham Police uh, Firearms and Use of Force trainer, Officer Ryan Rasmussen. Now, he could only testify as to what a police officer is trained to do or not do. He has no training or certifications in the civilian world, no experience in the civilian world. So everything he testified is like, oh, no, that's completely not the way someone should handle a situation like that. That would only apply to what a cop can do in that situation, yet it was still allowed to be applicable to me in my case. And the sixth thing that we've appealed on is uh, all the First Amendment restrictions that uh, have been placed on me throughout this whole thing. Uh, the Court of Appeals, uh, after nearly three years of plodding through the appeals process, affirmed the lower court's ruling. They said everything was right. It was proper for the judge to deny all the things for us and approve all the things for the other side. 
So they came to this conclusion using a uh, variety of erroneous so-called facts about the case. And again, I have videos on all these things on my YouTube channel, uh, youtube.com slash laughing at liberals, going to much more detail about these things. So now the case is in the hands of the state Supreme Court. And if they affirm everything, then we go up to the federal Supreme Court. Wow, that sounds expensive. Meanwhile, violence, mob violence is legalized in the streets of Portland. The First Amendment is virtually invalidated. You know, as much as people talk about the Second Amendment aspect, I like to bring up the First Amendment aspect. And that's the, the fundamental question that I pose in this case is, does a person have the right to be in a public area filming a public event as part of their job as a news videographer in free exercise of their right to freedom of the press. I don't think anybody's going to argue a person doesn't have that right. So if I have that right, then does a gang of thugs with masks over their faces and sticks in hand have the legal right and lawful authority to use force, threats, intimidation to prevent a person from exercising their rights to free press in a public area? According to the courts, yes, the Gang of Thugs has the right to do that. Oof, bad times. Um, are you raising money? Is there like a defense fund? Um, how can we help you out? Yeah, so again, in the beginning, I was banned from stating my own case. So I'm very thankful to uh, Kevin Starrett and Oregon Firearms Federation. And uh, Lars Larson uh, really helped get the word out as well. Uh, Victoria Taft, uh, you know, all sorts of people helping out, uh, especially early on. Um, so they raised defense funds then. Now that I'm able to speak my own case here, a lot of those restrictions have since been lifted. So I'm allowed to talk to media now. I'm allowed to post videos about it. The, uh, the seal on the evidence was lifted four months after the trial. So that's when I was able to post my own first person video that showed what actually happened. Um, so I have my own defense fund now uh, set up on PayPal uh, under stricklandlegalfund at gmail.com. Uh, or if you don't like using PayPal, uh, Oregon Firearms Federation is uh, reopening their thing for people to donate through them. Um, if you donate through them, make sure you put a little note on the thing there on, on their website, OregonFirearms.org, uh, that this is for Mike Strickland, so he knows to, where to uh, funnel that donation to. Um, so, yeah, that, that, that's the status of everything now. Um, you know, I'm continuing to put life back together and, you know, to try to, you know, try to survive through a lot of this. I mean, you know, it, 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 personal life gets affected drastically by all this as well, because, you know, you lose out on a lot of work. Uh, it's harder to find a place to live because, uh, you know, everybody does background checks. If you do a background check on me, it comes back as 10 felonies. Right. Again, for, for not harming a fly, for not wanting to fight anybody charged with 10 felonies involving a firearm, uh, car insurance doubles, uh, I had to pay all these court fines. I had to pay all these probation fees. Um, so yeah, I'm struggling to put life back together. Um, you know, I've, I've used a lot of the time to improve my video skills, um, you know, to take classes in that, you know, attend uh, film school at uh, the community college here. If anybody out there needs uh, video production, you know, for your business or wedding or, you know, events you're doing, you know, <laughs> uh, get in contact with me because that's, that's what I'm doing for a living. So, yeah. Well, 
Well, I'd invite you over, but then you'd be uh, exposed to multiple firearms. You'd have access. If they're locked in a safe, <laughs> if they're locked in a safe, then they are inaccessible to me, and that's allowed. Okay. All right. Well, that's good. Oh, man. Well, time flies. It's been a decade since last time I uh, chatted with you. It seems like yeah. it's been an exciting decade for you. My goodness. Well, uh, Michael Strickland, thank you very much for coming on. All the... Um, Links will be posted for his uh, defense fund at uh, Honor and Ron Paul slash EP28. Uh, and I strongly encourage you to reach out to him, see if you can help out in any way, and uh, follow and subscribe, uh, Laughing at Liberals. Even if you're a liberal, you know, just uh, you know, laugh at yourself. It's okay. Oh, I get co- I get comments on there saying, you know, I've, I've been a you know, I was an Obama supporter. I've been a Democrat for for you know twenty years. Seeing the stuff these crazy people are doing is making me vote for Trump. <laughs> well, we don't want to go that far. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, uh, nice chatting with you. Um, yes. Thank Thank you for having me. Yes. <laughs> uh, take care, and this will be posted uh, probably in oh, a couple of days. Um. But yeah, nice chatting with you again. I hope everything gets all settled and it gets appealed. Yeah, and- I, I, yeah, I have no intention of giving up until this thing gets overturned at whatever level it needs to go to to get overturned. Good for you. Good for you. All right. Take care, Michael. Thank you. Bye.